You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. All right, listeners, we're sitting in the office of John A. Jamison near Albany, Western Australia, in the southwest corner. And John runs Albany Mapping and Surveying Services. And I thought uh, I'd take uh, this opportunity. John's been on the show a few times, a great storyteller, to really get into the nuts and bolts of what a surveyor does. So, John, a surveyor's job is to? Essentially, a surveyor's role is, uh, if you're dealing in land in particular, The surveyor can cover many aspects. One of the key elements in controlling land use and its application for different purposes is called cadastral surveying. The cadaster being the delineation of all property boundaries, recorded, put on plans and maps, and then from these, titles are created. In our Australian system, we've largely gone to what is known as the Torrens land titling system, which originated in South Australia, as you'll pick up from the name Torrens. With the Torrens system, it depended on depicting the uh, parcels of land, placing permanent marks and monuments, around the perimeters, recording these in the old days, of course, in surveyors' field books and field notes, from which cartographic draftsmen would then present the various diagrams, plans, and larger lithos, as they were known, the large maps which covered large parcels of areas. In Australia, from the time of the first settlement, they had the old system titles in New South Wales, which were a projection of what was the, the English system, I would suggest, in terms of uh, natural features and uh, rivers, creeks, uh, bands of timber, whatever they may be, delineating land. Subsequently, they started setting these out in place and um, the old system title evolved into monuments marking out the the parcels. But we inherited a bit of a disaster in Australia from what we would call the squatocracy. Australia virtually was an open slather when the English ruling monarch claimed Australia to be terra nullius, invited all and sundry to charge ahead, grab whatever they could, ignore the fact that there were inhabitants here, and simply take in whatever they felt they could manage. And this provided they did certain things, give some money to the the establishment, as we would call them, and uh, a few bob was donated here and there, the people could occupy this land really indiscriminately. Eventually, we come to the fore that large areas of land were being 
grabbed, secured by various crown grants, as they were known, and the crown, of course, was the crown sitting on the ruling monarch in England. And then the crown grants often were granted for services rendered. The services mainly had a military connotation in one of the armed services or the Royal Navy or whatever. People would then get this land, squat on it, and then at a, as the population increased, they could sell off pieces, having done nothing with it other than claimed it. In fact, the whole of Australia was technically claimed under this basis. But as things evolved and there was suddenly wider interest in getting a piece of Australia amongst a wider, wider community, those... Uh, people classed as uh, convicts who were sent here for the term of their natural life, for example, once they'd done their time, there may be seven or ten or twelve years, whatever, they could actually take up these parcels of land. And um, this is where the original landowning fraternity, which was really a model created by the ruling monarchs in England going back for hundreds and hundreds of years, they used to reward their loyal servants with crown grants, different parts of what we call the United Kingdom. This was then translated into Australia. And I made a little bit more sophisticated in so much as it was a huge continent, largely unmapped at the time, other than the perimeter, which Matthew Flinders finished doing the perimeter in about 1812, but within the borders of this land mass that included Van Diemen's land, later to become Tasmania, it was taken up and mainly controlled by landed gentry with connections to the English throne, hence the Crown Grants. I've always found that uh, it's interesting studying this history, the fact that the... British Empire as such went around the world claiming large swaths of land, ignoring the fact that there were other people diligently caring for the land and treating it with respect, whereas the new arrivals would simply uh, ignore much of the uh, traditions of land management rather than taking it as a, a commodity that could be traded with. And of course, the Australia was a unique place. It was the oldest continent, we believe, since the uh, planet was created, not by human endeavour, but by some would suggest the creator or God, whatever you want, we wish to call it. But in, in essence, all of this was presented for the use of people who were prepared to care and occupy the land. It was only the people invading these formerly unclaimed continents stuck a flag up and said, right, boys, this is ours and uh, you better go along with what we wish to do with it. So this is, the, this is where it all started, going back to 1788. And certainly there's been evolutionary changes in the way surveying as such has been carried out. Uh, the early open slather was then broken up by formal 
legal surveys, legal in the sense that under the Crown, certain uh, requirements were made as to delineate these parcels of land and then show them on plans, diagrams, etc. Then, of course, the earliest surveys were subject to the equipment available. The sextant had been developed as a, a nautical tool for navigation and early surveys were done with sextants and magnetic compasses. The compass, of course, was an essential part of sailing a ship anywhere. The sextant for navigating, once the uh, development of sextant navigation was perfected, and these two basic tools were, in essence, the start of mapping surveying. Eventually, more sophisticated pieces of equipment called theodolites, they could measure accurate angles, very precise astronomical observations could be taken and fine-tune the positions right through to the modern era. I grew up when we had to learn with theodolites which had an accuracy of 20 seconds of angular measurement. They were, we were using steel measuring tapes which were graduated in imperial measure, that is the standard British foot, inch, yard, etc. Uniquely in Australia, for title purposes to land, they used links and chains. 100 links was the equivalent of 22 yards. 80 chains was one mile. Yards were 1,760 to the mile. So you had to learn all these things, apply them in the early mapping and surveying. Subsequently, as I got longer involved in the profession, we moved into the metric applications, which in Western Australia, for example, took place in 1972. So since that time, we've used the metric standard. It was interesting, a visionary surveyor general called John Forrest, back in the late 1890s to 1900 era, along with the Surveyor-General of the day, Harry Johnson, they had wished to move towards the metric system as far back. But, of course, we have always been dictated to by the ruling monarch who wears the crown sitting in abstentia in England. So they didn't want to relinquish their pieces of real estate, and Australia, of course, was the ultimate piece of real estate when you look around the world. Few people, massive natural resources, huge acreages of land which could be put to any use. And, of course, the system that was developed over the years was very much focused around ensuring that the English crown and monarch could control as much as possible of Australia. And it's strange that uh, until they had the referendum, which actually recognised Aboriginals in Western Australia, I think, and nationally in 1967, they were, they were virtually completely ignored, treated, weren't even in the census. So it shows that Australia has been a plaything of royalty, you might say, since its founding, because it was a dumping ground for the, well, those that were less desirables in the eyes of 
the English establishment who used to house them in old rotting hulks on the Thames until the stench got too much for the citizenry, the well-heeled, wealthy citizenry, and thought, well, we better get rid of this lot. Uh, so they thought they'd dump them on the east coast of Australia. At least the stench would be gone. And uh, if they survived, so be it. If they didn't survive, what the hell? That uh, It's out of mind, out of sight, etc. Now, we have inherited a social conscience in more recent times, certainly... It started to appear around the 1967 period when the national uh, decision was made to accept that there are Australian Aboriginal inhabitants who were here long before the, the, uh, the British dropped their uh, anchor at Botany Bay. So to my mind, until we can reverse a lot of the practices which were insti instigated in controlling the land and the cadastre will always have major difficulties. It's come. I've been fortunate enough to live and work amongst the Aboriginals of Central Australia and other parts. I've listened to their stories and how their history can be traced certainly back 50,000 years and recent announcements in uh, research going in the Flinders Ranges of South Australia could actually go back 100,000 years. So when, when you're trying to deny and acknowledge that this continent had been managed, and I use the word managed, not used as a piece of commodity, but managed and cared for because it sustained life for 100,000 years. And uh, the thing is, people have got to get their heads around this on a wider scale. And unfortunately, we've inherited a systematic brainwashing through all the institutions and colleges and universities that distorts what we call an economy. An economy is based essentially on access to natural resources, which the creative minds of many, many generations over the thousands of years have developed and applied and used resources that they never originally created, but which have had the impact of research and science allowing these things to become what we see sitting in front of us today. Microphones, desktop computers, motorised cars, we're talking about electronic cars. All these resources are provided by the creative abilities of human beings who can see that harnessing this gift presented to us could make life better. Unfortunately, the life is only better for a shrinking number of people who control the resources. And the people that are actually expected to prop them up, the other 95% of the planet, the population which I believe this week was clocked at 7.4 billion, unfortunately in Australia, our 24 million pales into insignificance. So until we can get around and make sure we acknowledge the fact that we're living beyond our means simply 
by allowing international corporations, bankers and other human-created institutions to steal and remove as much of our natural resources from the everyday citizenry, maybe I'm sounding a little bit radical. I don't know, but I've lived long enough on this planet and I've lived and worked throughout the planet, through Africa, Middle East, throughout Europe and all the states of Australia. All I can suggest is that as a surveyor, I need to delineate not only the land parcels, but delineate the succession of how it came to pass that we need people like myself as what I might call hired guns to act in the best interests of those who wish to keep captive to their own selves something called a land commodity which they've never created in the first place. They've simply usurped the use and occupation of parcels of land which provided the essential livelihood and sustenance for up to 100,000 years in Australia. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald and this week uh, we're with John Jamison who's... uh, just delivered uh, 17 minutes of <laughs> of prose on uh, exactly why a surveyor's job is so important and linking it back to uh, this uh, primordial drive to uh, uh, control resources. And uh, that's part of what uh, colonialism has been all about. And uh, in this day and age, we're living within this form of neo-colonialism and John, uh, I'm wondering how, as a surveyor, you uh, witness uh, this evolution from you know these stories. You've been around a long time. You you've met surveyors who were involved in uh, surveying the Kimberley and so forth uh, back in the 50s, and and from that point in time to now, where we've got these corporate communities being planned under the guise of master planned communities. And one of my pet themes on this show is talking about these staged releases, how property developers have a couple of hundred acres and uh, they drip feed it. And there's one one uh, development in Melbourne I'm watching is up to about stage 140 and it's only about 30% of the way through its development. And so with each stage release, the price of land goes up and part of the argument is, look, uh, we can't, we've got to stagger this because of the shortage of labour and there's just no way we can do what used to happen in the 60s and 70s where on a Saturday morning people would uh, attend a land sale in a marquee and all 200 acres of that land would have been sold off in one morning. It's very interesting, uh, the broadacre subdivisions of uh, particular areas I'm familiar with around the city of Perth, that started taking off in the, uh, on a reasonable scale during the 1970s. And uh, in the early 70s, I, I remember doing a job which is the suburb of Thornley, not far from the middle of Perth. And uh, we came up with a concept design and plan to utilise uh, some new concepts I wasn't fully aware of the fact that the planner architect I was working in association with had done his master's 
in the US after graduating in architecture from the University of Melbourne. So the design was very heavily influenced by what we call the American experience. And I've often said Australia is probably a 51st state, if they're being honest, in the way we, we operate. However, getting back to this Thornley exercise, the uh, subdivision was designed, carried out by a land developer. There were several hundred parcels of land involved. The requirement was to establish the roads and services for a housing estate. And I think by memory, most of the parcels were sold off for probably $1,000 a lot, perhaps less, perhaps more for strategically more important. In a marquee on a Saturday morning? Some in a marquee on a Saturday morning, some out the back of a, uh, a uh, panel van that the surfies use on the coast in those days to chuck their surfboard in and cruise around the state. But essentially... Uh, I can remember Alan Bond, who was a, a bit of a notorious, uh, I called him a professional crook because he still owes me seven and a half grand for some work I did for him back in 1971, but of course he's in the grave now and he'll never get paid. But he essentially was buying up big pieces of land, pegging them out. A lot of the time they didn't even have proper designed services and roads because it wasn't deemed essential in the hills east of Perth that you needed sewerage or drainage or anything like that. Just get the road in, get the telephone line plugged in, and off you go. And he and his wife used to have a marquee. They had Gladstone bags to collect the cash. They'd sell them off in, uh, in these pre-planned parcels with pegs in the ground. And uh, they were going for hundreds of dollars at the time for a parcel. And uh, this was quite... Uh, quite a thing. Everyone thought he was a financial wizard. All Essential were doing was going to the outskirts and periphery where land was very cheap. He probably bought up half of what is now Calamunda and Gooseberry Hill for maybe a couple of thousand dollars at best. And of course, he was picking up three or four hundred dollars at a pop. The actual costs of doing the surveying, I think, in those days would have been around about a hundred dollars per parcel. So other than the surveying and planning uh, costs, uh, the rest was cream. And uh, this, this w w was the way it, it went. Uh, in parallel with the, the bond type, of course, in the, in the 60s, 70s, etc., they had the State Housing Commission in Western Australia. Now, it was duty-bound to strategically develop localities which became the Perth suburbs. I remember surveying the suburbs of where Balga, Nolamara exist today. We went out there in a four-wheel drive and um, we hacked our way through the bush and the State Housing Commission would release up to six or seven hundred lots. I personally handled one 650 lot subdivision. That never happens today. Now if you've got a sudden release of 650 lots in a strategic area, only um, 8 or 10 kilometres or maybe 12 kilometres for the central CBD, and you can release these large groups of service lots at a, at a very reasonable price, it helps keep the price down. 
And I think it's rather interesting that over the last 20 or 30 years, since government has relinquished the development of larger estates and left it to what they call the private sector, who can gobble up the same big parcels of land and then selectively develop smaller holdings and maybe 20, 30 or 40 lots out of a strategic plan of 1,000 lots, the interesting thing is they always sell off the least advantageous parcels first, keep the other ones closer in to the major facilities. On until the corners, last. near the bus stops. You see it everywhere, don't you? Yeah. So it, it, it's, really, it's really quite, quite amazing. And, of course, I, I referred earlier to this, this first involvement of Thornley based on American design. Of course, America designs around the motor car. Everything's designed around the motor car. And the bigger the motor car and the faster the motor car, they can sprawl further and further out to the point where people, you know, they think it's quite handy. They can travel 30 or 40 k at 100 kilometres an hour and then get to work. But, of course, eventually the cost of servicing has outstripped the actual cost of what I call closer CBD development where you've already got services. And uh, to, to my mind, the, the, uh, the infill program that's finally being addressed in Perth, Western Australia, in 2016, probably missed the boat completely. And um, during my studies, I remember I got quite, quite a nice uh, distinction mark from uh, Professor Gordon Stevenson, who, who designed the uh, city of Perth late in the uh, 1960s. And uh, his, my, I was asked to, to, to do what I visioned, envisaged for the city of Perth. And I said, well, look, if you study what's happened in the more educated, older civilizations of Europe, where many of, of us have descended from, you'll find that they preserve the essentials for communities. They pick out the best agriculture and horticultural land. They set it aside. And um, if you look at some of the modules that are developed in places like Switzerland, which is the most successful new age democracy, which has been kicking along for 700 odd years, I've had a lot of experience through that area. And, and modules of 20 to 25,000 people in a modular form to extend into city form, interlinked with high speed public transport means that you can make a much more efficient use of land, you can maintain the productive areas for your market gardens and your, and your smaller intensive holdings uh, closer into the city. But of, of course, here we demolished all our market gardens, we built houses on them, we got rid of all of the places at Wanneroo, for example, where I remember as a young surveyor, there were 10 and 20 acre parcels of land sustaining families producing fresh horticultural produce for the city. They're all gone. They're covered with concrete, bitumen and brick and tile or brick, fibro and colourbond houses today. And, and everyone's saying, we need more public transport. It's too late to then bulldoze things and put transport. Look, this fiasco they're talking at Fremantle to put a blooming new freight link into Fremantle with all the obstacles they've created by this wall-to-wall -wall sprawl, it's costing billions today where a little bit of forward planning and a decentralist approach 
in the in a state Western Australia here most people probably realize it covers a third of the continent and it's also got the most city centric bit of planning I've ever seen on the planet and it's and it's just you know purse choking itself to death well listeners there we go John Jamison podcasters uh, stay tuned uh, for an extended interview uh, with John because we're just getting going I've asked him two questions in 28 minutes Don't be frustrated. Why shouldn't I be? What's wrong? Nothing. So, John, last week on the show we had Professor Peter Newman and he was actually giving the other side to that story, saying that Stevens, when he designed the city of Perth, having his US background, he brought with it some of the best planning structures and within it was the need for a metropolitan regional improvement tax on uh, large land holdings on the edge of town. So uh, there's a a 0.014% addition to the land tax for these uh, sprawled holdings that colourful characters like Alan Bond made so much money out of. But really, such a low percentage, um, as Newman said, has been very useful in buying up green spaces. It's been useful in preserving rail corridors for the future growth and so forth. And when I travelled through Perth and experienced how good uh, the public transport system was, uh, it, it was uh, encouraging to think that uh, with some good forethought, uh, you know, some problems can be overcome. But uh, uh, for the rest of WA, there certainly are plenty of pressures. But with this low charge of 0.014% and at best for a land tax it's some 2%, it's uh, not really a, a very high charge. And listeners, remember that a land tax acts as a counterweight to land price and thus mortgage debt. So the higher the land tax is, the lower the land price is. And that means you save thousands of dollars each year in interest in terms of your mortgage payments. So, John, um, yeah, the, the pressure that... Uh, uh, these stage releases place on communities is uh, something that's yet to be quantified. And I just wonder whether through the various conferences you go to, uh, whether it be planning, whether it be surveying uh, or land titling, uh, what, what sort of discussions go on? Is there any criticism of stage releases? Yes, Carl. I think uh, there there has been... Uh, in in the recent times, an appreciation that uh, some of the previous practices need need to be uh, revisited and uh, reevaluated. I'm also familiar with uh, Professor Newman's uh, work he does, and uh, he's he needs to be applauded for a lot of his um, insights into where things can be remedied and uh, should be supported. And unfortunately, we don't have too many politicians that come from what I might call a real engineering, surveying and real world experience. It seems to me they're bred out of what I call an incestuous situation where you, you're, you're bred into the Labor Party, you're bred into the Liberals or you're bred into the Nationals and then the succession you'll find traces back historically to the origins of these parties and the party key elements major landowners and they don't want to see their strength disseminated throughout the community. They want to still 
be the what I call born to rule people. They believe they've inherited the right to rule rather than taking people from a wider cross-section of the community and seeing if we can get some input. Now, I did serve a stint as a City of Albany councillor from 2003 to 2007, and I suppose in some respects people were a bit suspicious when I got elected because they ran a, a Labourite, a Liberal, and some, a couple of others against me. And the funny thing was I've always been an independent of political persuasion all my life, and... Uh, I ended up accumulating the same number of votes as all the other four candidates combined. So that said something about uh, the people that I have worked with in my community since I arrived here in 1990. They wanted somebody to speak up for the community's issues. They wanted to address things like uh, renewable energy. And uh, if you look out my office window on a nice day, you'll see the wind farms and wind towers. These were the things we fought for and got in. The first uh, stint I did was as a ACF, Conservation Foundation convener, where we said, look, this dumping all the effluent in the ocean uh, that's being proposed by the then Water Authority of Western Australia is a no-no. They go and tell the people, they've given the, the, uh, the citizens three options. So the options, number one, was to dump it in the ocean at a place called Sandbatch, beautiful piece of the coast, pristine coast, frequented by surfers and campers and holidaymakers. The second point was off King Point in the, in the harbour of Albany, just opposite where all the cruise ships now come cruising into Albany regularly. I think we have 16 or 18 international cruise ships with two or 3,000 people visiting Albany at each trip. The third one was at a place called Nanarup, east of Albany, Fortunately, the chap that owned the nearest piece of real estate was quite wealthy. He'd made a killing out of real estate in Sydney, bought up a big chunk of the south coast at Nanarub and decided he didn't want anyone putting an ocean outfall opposite his piece of pristine beach. So he, he joined the fray and we researched the fact that you were giving the people a no-option option. It was going into the ocean. Here was a valuable resource. I got together with a number of other people, some of them soil scientists. There's a lot of degraded farmland around Albany. Eventually, we actually convinced the then Water Authority, why don't we grow trees? This was in 1990, 91 era. We managed to get them to secure a large piece of land opposite what is the Albany airport. They planted a tree species which allowed three crops. They coppice. Over a period in 1990 dollars, this would return a positive $14 million to the local community and economy over a 21-year time frame. Dumping things in the ocean, A, costs roughly 300% more in infrastructure and engineering costs compared using a pipeline on land. Number two, of course, means you've got a renewable resource that not only improves the quality of the air in your city, you have a plantation which can be harvested and used to put less pressure on our forests. Instead of wholesale clearing forests, we can clear these 
Blue gums, chip them, turn them into any other material you like. You can turn them into laminates. There's Germany, German companies now turning the product into laminates, which I presume we end up buying back for building industry. But all these options took a lot of fighting. We, took, we had to actually stand up there and make sure the community supported this. There's a lot of people trying to knock it because they already had the design pre-done by Mobber Consultants in London who specialised in offshore outfalls. But my experience, having worked in the marine industry and doing a lot of hydrographic work, I'd uncovered some shortfalls in outfalls around Europe, and particularly the UK. And when I brought this to the attention of people, they suddenly realised, hey, here's somebody that knows what he's talking about. Let's grow trees instead of dumping this valuable resource in the ocean. And, and that was capable of killing off the smell? There must have been a few different levels of, of purifying the water. Yeah, of course. They, they went through all tertiary programs to, uh, to, to treat the, the effluent before it got uh, piped up and then used as reticulated uh, through, the, through the forest area that was planted. And um, th these are examples on a local level that can be done, but the, in the wider context, I think we have to start really addressing how our natural resources are not being used for the community's benefit, but simply to line the pockets of individuals and corporations who salt away their profits in very poor tax regimes in the Bahamas or the Cayman Islands or somewhere off Vanuatu or wherever it may be, I think we've got to start standing up and saying, hey, we, uh, we don't want to be dictated to any longer by international corporations headquartered in London, New York, Tokyo or Shanghai. And until we are mature enough and wake people up, we're going to be taken to the cleaners time and time again. And as the nightly reality TV keeps hammering home, the best way to make money is to renovate houses and, and get in on this game of uh, collecting this unearned increment, the, the economic rents of land. It, it's becoming harder and harder. And, John, one of the, the, the seems like the latest edicts out of uh, Davos-type meetings is for governments to continue their privatisation agenda in one of the most sensitive elements in, in terms of land surveying, and that is privatising the land titles offices. And at present, um, the New South Wales government's paying JP Morgan some $10 million to consult on how they privatise their land titles office there. And Victoria, there's rumours about South Australia, I think, has already done it. I'm not quite sure what's happening here in WA, but... Uh, it's a scary fact that international corporations may well know more about who owns Australia's land than, than what we do, what our, our elected representatives do. Yes, that's quite, quite true, Carl. I'm uh, aware of what's been going on in that uh, privatising the, the registries, uh, particularly New South Wales, and that's being a model that's been done hand-in-hand hand with Western Australia. Western Australia originally had a... Uh, an authority known as the Lands and Surveys Department, which was created shortly after uh, Western Australia received its statehood independence from the, uh, the, the rest of uh, the country. Now, at the time, land 
Department of Lands and Surveys had been the agency to manage and control all land in Western Australia. It went through a series of successions in its, uh, I guess, operations. It became, at one stage, the Department of Land Administration, known as DOLA, D-O-L-A, and then it became the DLI, Department of Land Information, and there was a big bun fight, I remember, back in the 80s, around about 83, 84, 85 era, when the... Uh, what I call the bureaucratic side of administration, wanted to uh, neutralise the Surveyor-General and his influence. And um, around about that period, what I call the, um, the private uh, side of uh, land use and that were pushing, I think, for the re removal of the status and position of the su Surveyor-General and, and put it more into the hands of a lawyer or a lawyer type. And as we all know, lawyers are there to look after lawyers. They're not interested in you and me. Social justice is very low on their agenda if you really boil it down. But uh, the subsequent uh, outcome was over a period, Landgate was formed and that is set up as a private company which trades internationally, buying and selling knowledge and know-how. In recent times, a private company within the Landgate structure has been set up to work towards what uh, Carl mentioned, is selling off the registry, the land registry in Western Australia, with a, an overall model, I believe, encompassing New South Wales and the other states that want to proceed down this manner. Now, that's all well and good, but it also will mean that these private companies that control the register will actually be basing their future operations purely on land speculation. It's already happened in Western Australia that set up an agency called Land Corp. And Land Corp's brief is to, to take uh, charge of all the Crown land that has not been freeholded into other private ownership and, and develop that. They're currently trying to st sort stuff out in Albany, um, down at a place called Emu Point, which is a highly desirable area for retirement. They've been in charge of all the land surrounding the Albany Entertainment Centre, which was built on the foreshore whilst I was uh, on the council during the period 2003 to 2007. And obviously, speculation in land seems to be the model that governments are now choosing. Now, to my mind, when you start speculating with commodities that you never in any way created in the first place, it will be a recipe for disaster. Now, at the very least land should be in some form of leasehold. At least in some form of leasehold, then there are terms that can be ne negotiated within the length of lease, the, the requirements, the contributions to be made. And if this is done reflecting the value of the particular location, the value of the particular resource covered by the lease, then realistic returns can be put back for the wider 
use of society. It was quite interesting that, the, to the best of my knowledge, and uh, I've taken a bit of trouble to check out what the Chinese do, I'm talking about mainland Chinese, they, they called up their lease after 99 years at Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong was developed as a lease to the, to the British because they needed a nice centre in the Far East to do their wheeling and dealing and drug running and opium trade and all these other nefarious activities. However, the Chinese said, right, boys, the lease is up, we're taking it all back. And they now have done the same, obviously, with Macau. They've done uh, what I believe to be a model of what used to be called the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, the People's Bank of Australia. If you check out Chinese banking, it's the People's Bank of China that calls the shots. And in terms of uh, China, under the People's Bank of China, they've got the Chinese People's Agricultural Bank, the Merchants Bank. They're all, they're all stemming down from control by the people. And you'll find people are a bit disturbed by the fact that investments by Chinese companies in Australia taking on resources. You'll find that it's government trading units that are investing in this because the main concerns of the Chinese, in my experience, is they've got 1.4 billion people to look after. They don't want another revolution. They know that food, water, are the, the real elements that sustain life. So why not invest in using their own resources and their own financial credit to take stakes in Australia, in South America, in Africa, in other countries, because they were so sick of the international banking cartel screwing everyone. That's why they set up BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. The BRICS banking is simply a Commonwealth Bank type operation controlled and administered by those five countries. And you'll find that their agenda is in investment and infrastructure. Because if people have got a comfortable house, food to eat, regular employment, they're not going to have another revolution. And in trading in non-US dollars as well, which uh, is a huge challenge to the global hegemony. And it's going to be very interesting to see what Donald Trump does about that. All right. Well, uh, we've got to uh, wrap this conversation up soon. But uh, we've talked a lot about housing and and land use there. But uh, you've done a lot in the mining sector as well as a mining surveyor. And uh, alongside Alan Bond, you've worked for Lang Hancock in the past. Now, you told us a story once uh, early on about uh, some work over near the over in Queensland for him. But you know what was was uh, what was he like, and uh, you know how did he get his foot in the door and and take off from that point in time? Well, Lang Hancock was a pretty old-fashioned uh, Australian West Australian pastoralist uh, who operated. Uh, cattle country up and around the Whittenham Gorge area in the Pilbara of Western Australia. He's a bit of a self-trained uh, character in many respects. He, he liked flying around in his aeroplane and he, he used to do inspection, obviously, of his properties from, from the air. And during that time, he, he was flying around, noticed all this iron ore in the hills um, in the Pilbara and wondered what could be done with it. And... Uh, he tended to be a bit visionary in, in some respects. And uh, 
at one stage of the game, I remember he had meetings with Joe Bianchi Peterson in Queensland because he knew Queensland had a raft of other natural resources, coal, uh, the product for nickel. Uh, there was other things like uh, chromite. In Western Australia, there were resources of uh, manganese, chromite. Uh, I've surveyed many leases for these uh, products, as well as vast amounts of very high-grade iron ore. And he had a vision to build a railway across the top of Australia, kicking off from Queensland in uh, Townsville, uh, through the Northern Territory, probably slicing through uh, close to Tennant's Creek, which uh, people would be familiar with as a mining area of uh, Central Northern Territory, and uh, across into Western Australia, where all these massive resources were located. He got people a bit upset when he wanted to create a port using an atomic bomb blast, and, uh, and that ended up getting shelved. But subsequent to that, um, he engaged uh, my then business uh, to do a hydrographic survey all around Dubuque Island, uh, which is uh, more or less immediately to the west of a a watering hole known as the Wim Creek Pub. Uh, well, we went up there and spent a few weeks charting all that area so that we could set up the marine charts on which a port could be designed and based. Unfortunately, in those days, the Northern Territory as such was still very much controlled as a province of Canberra. And... Uh, of course, the people in Canberra don't like power escaping from the ACT. It's got to be kept there. And they thought, well, we'll kick that into touch. We'll make sure that no nothing happens because we can put a, a stopper called the Northern Territory in their way. And they have no jurisdiction over that. Had it been a similar situation to Queensland and Western Australia and the Northern Territory already a state in its own right, I believe it would have happened. But uh, in, in the interim, of course, his idea was to develop our own integrated, high-quality steel industry. And instead of exporting all the shiploads of bloomin' ore from all around Australia, including the coal, the coking coal and everything else you need, uh, ship out steel. We, we had the capacity of natural resources. And I remember doing a job when they were opening up Parapadu which was uh, the next stage to Mount Tom Price, and I was camped there. We were surveying a new railway route from Parapadu to link up Tom Price, and then it joined up to go up to the coast of Dampier. And there was a mob of uh, Japanese uh, industrial chemists in the camp. Those days, there was none of this flying in, flying out. You went up there for the duration, in this case, for about six months. The only time off we had was a Sunday afternoon to do our laundry, wash our clothes, service our vehicles, and then crack back into a 12 or 14-hour day for the rest of the week. But we'd have a barbecue, and these Japanese industrial uh, chemists were talking to me one afternoon, and we'd just been up to uh, inspect some uh, drilling in one of the hills. Uh, was, uh, one of the drilling rigs needed some welding, some broken brackets. And while I was up there, I went up to give the mechanic a hand and understand and uh, check out these massive drilling rigs. And this bloke had a broken bolt, and he said, have a look at this, John. So he got the Lincoln welder, which was running on a power takeoff of the four-wheel drive, and he welded this 
old broken bolt into the side of the hill. He said, now there's a sledgehammer, see if you can break it. This was something like 85% pure iron sticking to the side of the hill. I got the sledgehammer out and bent the bolt. It, ne it never came loose from the side of the hill. When I got back to, back to the camp, I was telling the, the Japanese industrial chemist about this. He said, oh, yes, we know, we know. This is the best iron ore in the world. What we're only worried about is maybe your government will insist on 50% investment back here for every 50% of the product that goes offshore. And, of course, the Japanese... They were very, very happy when the special iron ore agreements were drafted by the then West Australian government because there was no condition put for equal investment back in Australia. They, they just clapped their hands and kept loading the ships up. And, of course, now we, we've got old obsolete things like at Wyala. They're talking about propping up ancient technology by spending money. You know, it's, it's like buying a broken down racehorse and thinking you can put it in the Melbourne Cup. It's, it's hopeless. It's, it'll never run a race. It'll fall over and drop dead. Because we did not have this reinvestment with visionary people when we had the resources that we controlled, then, of course, we've missed the boat. And, and other countries that have invested in science and technology have left us... Streets behind. I keep seeing all these articles and articles about what's wrong with Australian education. Well, I can tell you, from the time I was a very young graduate and starting off in my career, where we had to be competent, I've got people with honours degrees these days, I have to help them with their spelling to do a report. Now, there's something funny happened in the last 30 or 40 years, if that's the case. But then... I guess one day we'll wake up and all be speaking Mandarin and shrugging our shoulders and wonder what happened. Yes, John, it's uh, it's just gobsmacking, isn't it, that a country that was so passionate early on about, you know, because within those first fleets of, of Scots and all sorts of convicts that came here, there were people who recognised that uh, the land should be held in perpetuity by government. There was an understanding that we've got to keep these aristocrats out. But from your perspective, how have these wealthy influences taken over our democracy and with it taken over our land? Well, it's a, it's a function of uh, you, you choose the government and... We're giving an education that tells us we live in an open, free, democratic society. It's only open, free and democratic for some. And if the, the, the person that's controlling the financing of people who will represent you can influence through the lobbyists. It's, it's interesting to me that all ex-government senior minister positions, whether it's state, federal or, or sometimes local and in the mayoral situation in big cities, they tend to all wind up getting nice little lucrative jobs as directors or lobbyists representing a certain sector of the community, the sector being what is loosely called the big end of town. Now, to, to my mind... The, the whole structure needs a severe overhaul and we see people's disquiet when 
the recent U.S. elections, completely against the odds, they elected the, this bloke Donald Trump, who's simply made his killing and, and uh, finance out of obviously wheeling and dealing around the globe with commodities called land, real estate in particular. Now, when I check the list of wealthy billionaires in Australia, you'll find that it's all related back to their property and real estate holdings that underpin it all. Now, to my mind, the foundations of that particular building that sits on a piece of dirt was never created by these guys. Certainly they may have built or been instrumental in having built these structures, and I don't have a problem with people who have done that. But in essence, the locality dictates the value of what you can get in the way of rental. Now, if you're in the heart of Albany, in the CBD, where you've got all the facilities laid on, maintained and provided, I might add, by government, then you're obviously going to have all the parking bays, you'll access the libraries, the colleges, the schools, the daycare centres, you'll have nice running water, you'll have your gas laid on, you'll have your other sewerage all tended to, and therefore if you've got a business located in that centre of town and you happen to own the piece of land on which your premises are built, you'll always make a decent living because you are using community-provided facilities to subsidise your living. Now, if you want to take an, another example, let's go out to central Australia where I worked for, me, for a number of years based out of Alice Springs. We were doing a job in northern South Australia an area that had been surveyed for exploration mainly for hydrocarbons, oil and gas in the 1960s by geophysical survey companies. I got a call one day in the Alice Springs office. My secretary saw the president from the US, the vice president from the US wants to talk to you, John. I nearly fell out of my chair. I said, hang on, are you sure? She said, uh, yes, this gentleman wants to speak to you. He's the vice president. And I said, okay, put him through. Turned out it was a chap called... Harold Kendall, Hal Kendall. I'd known him from a day's working offshore industry in the, the North Sea years before when he was a project petroleum engineer with Amoco, a big American corporation heavily involved in the oil and gas industry. And uh, Hal said, hey, John, you're a hard man to track down. I said, yes, Hal, I'm in Alice Springs. I'll be here for a while. I want you to mosey on down and check out some land in South Australia, John. We're going to go drill some holes. I said, well, hang on a minute. It's not that easy, Hal. We'll, I'll have to go down to Adelaide and talk to the South Australian Department of Mines and Energy because this is actually land ceded back to the traditional owners of the land the way you did your company or your predecessors did the seismic work. Much of that land is now under jurisdiction of what they call the traditional owners, Aboriginal people who have an affinity with that land. He said, OK, how long that take? I said, oh, well, you know, give me a week, I'll get down and check it out and I'll call you back. So we did that, checked it all out and found out that 
yes, we could access the area, but we, could ha we had to be very careful where we could and could not build an access road. I said, all right, and then when I called him back, I pointed out we should talk to the representatives and the traditional owners to explain what we want to do and why we want to do it. That was all put in place. We got permission. I spent a week in the, out in the bush with the female and male members because there's certain areas that are entrusted to the males only, certain to the females only in traditional Aboriginal culture. And we had a female anthropologist, very knowledgeable, spoke some of the local dialects, who happened to also be an American that took up Australian residence. So we went out and stayed there, found a route to build the road, and then we had to have a big meeting. What was going to be the compensation offered? So we sat down in the Marla Hotel motel on the road between Adelaide and Alice Springs, and we had a great big meeting. And it was getting a bit heated. Sometimes the Americans want their own way all the way. I said, well, hang on, fellas. We've got to, we've got to address the issue here because we're talking about people who've had a disadvantaged lifestyle. They've been evicted from their land. They've been subject to atomic bombs that the British dropped there, telling everyone in sundry that oh, nobody lived there. It's OK. Just drop the bomb and we'll test it. I said, we sat down and I said, well, I think the best offer which would be fair and reasonable, is that you pay all costs, make sure you leave the environment in as pristine a condition as you can, allowing for the fact we're building a road. We're going to need water to, to build roads. So we'll have to do some hydrological studies and we'll find some decent water. I said, these people are crying out for water. They want to get away from drugs and disease and all that from some of the other areas. And if we can find locations to get water for our road construction needs, and there was about two or 300 k of road we had to build, I said, then at least if you find no oil and gas, there'll be a road and there'll be water and there'll be something that the people can reconnect to their traditional lifestyles. And they said, well, how are we going to pay for it? I said, well, the best way is you, you put in all the road infrastructure, put the water bores, etc., and then write up an agreement that you will then give them 20% dividend for all recoverable resources. This was a bit revolutionary at the time, but the interesting, the lawyer representing the Central Land Council thought it was a good deal. The Americans anyway agreed it was a good deal. A couple of friends of mine were at the meeting, said that makes a lot of sense. And even the American anthropologist that spoke all the local dialects thought it was a good deal. Because I felt if they could get back 20%, they could then reconnect to their land, administer it in the way they wanted. You'd get your resource, whether it was oil or gas, and it'd be a benefit, what I would call a win-win outcome. Unfortunately, they didn't find any oil and gas. Fortunately, the road was built. Fortunately, we found drinking water in places that people didn't think it was possible. And some Aboriginals that live out there have escaped the drugs and disease prevalent in other communities. That was John Jamison, former Albany councillor, president and treasurer of the Bornholm Fire Brigade, secretary of the sports club, founding board member of the Denmark Environment Centre. Yes, he's done it all. And there he was reiterating for us the importance of community-controlled 
resources. Democracy means so little without an economic right to the value of those resources, but instead workers are taking it in the neck with a litany of taxes alongside record high mortgages, consigning the masses to a lifetime of debt and little idea why. All right, I really want you to read a piece I'm going to put in the show notes uh, about how the left have been conned to criticise capitalism rather than rent seekers. Some sort of title like that. I'm offline at the moment on the way to Esperance just before the Nullarbor. All right, thanks for your support here on 3CR's Beloved Airways. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Let's keep these monopolists honest. For God's sake, they're getting away with blue murder. Thanks very much for listening to The Renegade Economist. Get in touch via renegades at earthsharing.org.au. Check the show notes on earthsharing.org.au in the next 24 hours. And always uh, keep an eye on our Facebook and Twitter accounts at Earthsharing. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Keep an eye on your wallets. Keep an eye on the policy fraud. Let's change this economic system.